right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this wonderful Sunday morning. My name is Chris Payne. I'm the lead pastor here at City Life Church. It's great seeing awesome, awesome faces today, especially in the midst of a crazy week. Any, anybody in here affected by the flood at all, rain and stuff like that, please make sure. Jay's like slowly, like the Ricky Bobby. Uh, just let us know how we can help you. Um, last time when Harvey hit, we immediately uh, got, the, got the news, went out, helped some of our people as well, and then ended up in over 100 homes. Most people we did not know, kind of all over Houston. And so we want to be able to help. We're assessing and getting with the nonprofit that we've partnered with from Harvey, Harvey uh, SBP, and uh, we're going to be working with them. So look out for some details on how you can help, especially if you're good at mucking. Um, we know we're good at hunkering down in Houston. I got tired of hearing that word hunker down um, during Harvey, but it was just such a crazy time watching just the flood rise, especially uh, up north, um, northeast of us, where it's been some of the worst. So we're going to be help as much as we can as we partner with SBP. So look out for that, and we want to be there for them. Uh, in the meantime, for us, we've been going through this series, we started last week. Um, that we've called 100 Years From Now, and it's based off of a book study from the president of every nation, which is the organization we're a part of, um, Steve Merle. And he wrote this book to help us think about the legacy that our lives today and then our churches and our communities will ultimately build because everything you're doing, whether you realize it or not, you are building towards some type of legacy. And we want it to be a legacy that promotes and glorifies God, brings him honor within our community and within us individually. We talked about last week the domino effect. And the domino effect by definition is the repercussion of an act or event under which every associated or connected entity is affected to a more or less the same degree. Having the domino effect in our life because of the choices that we make today. Last week, we talked about where our church came from and looking at our history in order to also look at our future. And it's so important to do that. I don't know about you, but I love reading and listening to other people's testimonies and within community, hearing about what God has done. Because sometimes I feel like, is God going to use me or do anything in me? And I haven't seen anything. But then when I hear Jay give a testimony of something that God's done, to me, it's a reminder, okay, the Bible says God's not a respecter of persons, but of faith. And so if he could do it for you, he could do it for me too. And sometimes those become anchors for me in seeing the faithfulness of God and others. God can do it. Come on, turn to somebody and say, God can do it. Yes, he can. Yes, he will. Okay. The domino effect is very important. The, the scripture we used last week, kind of the theme scripture for the book and for this series is Psalm 145.4, which David says, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty Acts. That's the goal. That's what we want to do is be a launching pad for the next generation as we every week, every Sunday, not just to be monotonous, but honestly in full on passion and intentionality, pray for our children, pray for our kids as they go. And we call them disciplers. They are disciplers and disciple makers. And we want to breathe into them this life and this legacy as well. Today, as we continue in this series, I want to talk about one of the things that Jesus established among us, and it's community. 
and the need for community and why community helps build that trajectory in order to build a legacy ultimately because we're better together. What you do and you do alone is okay, but what we can do together is exponentially great for the legacy that we can set. You know what the problem though is? Loneliness. In fact, Prime Minister Theresa May last year in 2018 had a person that she designated and appointed in the UK, a loneliness minister. And the news reports came out and people kind of gawked at it or looked at it like, what are you doing? And yet this was the report that 9 million Brits, nearly 20% of the population, considered themselves lonely. And Theresa May was quoted by saying, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. And that's in the UK. I don't know if you know, but the U.S. is worse. In fact, in the U.S., it's much higher. Statistics of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. 35% of Americans report that they are chronically lonely. Only 8% report having a conversation with a neighbor over the previous year. In 1984, the average American had three confidants. Recent reports today say 25% of Americans have zero. In other words, you have 1,000 friends on Facebook or followers on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is that you do. And at the same time, it's hard to find somebody just to watch your pet overnight because you don't have a close confidant. And this is the tragic state of America a much higher rate than even in the UK. The sad part and the reality about this loneliness is that many psychologists and the stats and the reports are saying that America is considered the loneliest place in the world. Now, we might have a lot of people and we might continue to have great growth population-wise, but all of us have felt that sense of loneliness that comes over us. And what's amazing is even, and especially sometimes in big cities like New York, like Houston, in the midst of thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions of people, you can feel so lonely. And a lot of that is because there is not one specific way or chemistry that is binding us as a community. There is not a common thing that we're all in and with because of the diversity, which is a beautiful thing, but it can also make us feel like I don't look like you, act like you, have your culture, and it makes me feel isolated and lonely, and I build up these walls because of how I feel, because of perceived reality. Not only Is it affecting our nation as a whole? It's affecting us individually. In fact, the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, was quoted by saying this, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. George Gallup, in his research, was quoted by saying, Americans among the loneliest people in the world And loneliness is actually dangerous to your health. If you're passionate about health, it's very dangerous to your health. Many health problems and 
Reports have been shown that people with this chronic loneliness that are alone and feel it, it is weighing on their health and can be equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It has a greater impact on your lifespan than obesity. And multiple studies have tied it to heart disease, dementia, of course, what's plaguing us, anxiety and depression. Imagine like many of the people in Houston this last week that I heard reports of personally, Northeast area in spring, humble area, four feet of water in their home. And they're looking at their home and they're looking at all their possessions, devastated, just like we experience at Harvey on a mass scale. Imagine if they don't have any community, no confidants, no one. You ever felt depressed? You ever felt anxious? Imagine that feeling that's overcoming them. And statistics show us that that's a lot of people. In fact, that's most people that we are seeing. Not only is it affecting people individually and their health individually, it's affecting our culture and our society at large. David Brooks is an author who writes a lot about community and he says this, the extreme individualism that our culture and that our country has gravitated towards leads ultimately to loneliness. And loneliness leads to tribalism and he calls tribalism the evil twin or dark twin of community, of true community. It's a pseudo community, but it's an evil twin. He would say this, and he compares tribalism with community. Tribalism is based on, he says, a mutual hate where community is built and based on a mutual love. So I'm lonely, so I'm going to find someone who I can create my tribe and has the same tendency and things that I like, whether it's my skin color, my culture, my language, the thing, certain things that I like. I like to, you know, eat Tide Pods. So I'm going to find a culture that loves to eat Tide Pods and create a Facebook group and get together. That was a real thing, by the way. And I'm going to create a tribe, but my tribe is not built on mutual love. It's built on hate, typically, and built on I'm not like that person. You have churches that become tribes that aren't communities. And there's, I've literally been to churches that say, we are a church for, for people who hate church. You're building a church on hate? Why don't we build on the dream of community that Jesus had? The love and acceptance of each other, not the hate of those other people, that's the lonely end up in tribes. And he says tribalism is ultimately based on mutual hate. It's based on who and what we are against, where community is based on who and what we're for. Tribalism is based as a zero-sum battle for scarce resources where it is kill or be killed. Community, true community is based and built on generosity, honor, and celebration of the other, and appreciation about how different we are. There's a big difference between tribalism and community. David Brooks continues, and he says this, if God sets the solitary, the lonely, in families, which that's what he does, then individualism sets the lonely in tribes. 
So here's the question. Is there a practice in the life of Jesus and his teachings that builds true community, not a pseudo fake tribe, but a true community based on love and self-sacrifice? The answer is yes. We're going to look through a little bit today in scripture, Matthew the letter of Matthew, and we're going to kind of dive in and just walk a little bit of how Jesus established community, knowing he came to a very lonely people, selfish and in bondage to their own needs. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, as Jesus is teaching and going about, it says he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Sidebar, this wasn't just like a clever thing, and they went, <laughs> fishers of men. That's a good one, Jesus. It was actually an idiom um, at the time that meant, I'm a great teacher and a rabbi. Follow me, and I'm going to help you capture the mind and imagination of the hearer. Like, I'm going to help you win people over. And the book of Proverbs was said, he who wins souls is wise. And Jesus was the most wise man who ever walked the earth. He says, follow me. Be like me. Apprentice under me. We use the word disciple and he became a disciple or they were apostles. But I think a good term nowadays is apprentice. They became his apprentice. I want to act like you. I want to walk like you. I want to talk like you. And I'm going to follow you everywhere you go. Not just meet with you once a week over coffee, but I'm going to be with you. This is the community Jesus began. And I would say continues. And it says this, verse 20, immediately. At the, at the idea of this community, that's what I'm after. They said they left their nets and following. They left their career. They left their jobs. They left everything and said, I want to follow. I want to be like you, and I want to apprentice under you. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Their dad's in the boat. And they're mending the nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They said, we are all into this community of being with you. And they knew what they were getting into. They understood what it meant to follow a rabbi that is a 24-7 thing. It is not a conditional once-a-month meeting. Matthew 8 18 through 22, as Jesus is building his community, he's continuing to teach More people come along. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, a scribe was a religious ruler who had memorized and knew the Torah, who knew the scriptures. He comes up to him, knowing the scripture, says, teacher, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. He says, I'm seeing all these other people follow you. Man, I want to be like them. I want to be like you. I want to follow you. And Jesus said to him as the worst salesman of all time, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I love this. Someone who had gone through seminary, memorized the scripture versus the fishermen who probably didn't know as much, weren't as qualified, but what separated the two, listen, this is the beautiful thing about Jesus. He's not waiting for you to be perfectly mature to follow him. What he's looking for is commitment. 
See, we look at maturity. That's the perfect person. Let's scribe. He would be the one that would be just like Jesus because he already has the degree. But the fisherman had the commitment, willing to leave everything. And he, Jesus, as if he knew the guy, kind of exposed him and said, listen, as, as if he's looking at his heart saying, I know the deal breaker in your life, and that is your comfort. Because there's times I don't have a place to lay my head. And you're asking, Jesus, I'll follow you while he has his sleep number bed with him. And he's just like, bro, like this is my 30. I can't sleep anywhere else. And Jesus is going, you got to drop that, bro. Because there's times I lay my head on a rock and we just sleep where we are. And we don't know what the guy said, but these are examples to make us go, what is keeping us from fully committing to Jesus? Another of the disciples said to him, Lord. Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now that might seem harsh, but Jesus sometimes is harsh. He's not just this nice guy because he has a mission and he's looking for people that are serious about coming on board. And this idea of let me, go, but let me bury my father didn't mean his dad was dying right then and there. And Jesus was like, no, don't do that. It was actually, again, a figure of speech back in the day that said, I am the firstborn and I'll have the inheritance. So let me go back to my parents and wait until my parents die. Then I've got to take care of them. Then I'll come and help you. And Jesus says, no. Because I'm looking for commitment, not maturity. Looking for commitment. This is the people he's trying to build and the community he's trying to build. He ultimately has his 12 disciples. We read Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 and 3. And let's look at who these, this community, these disciples were. It says this, the names of the 12 apostles, disciples, apprentices are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, which we read about. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, which we read about. And then there's more, Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. He had the 12. And these were a ragtag, definitely polaristic people on different sides of the planet in so many ways, even though they were in the same community generally. Now, we don't have time to go through every one of them, but it's so interesting, the team that Jesus specifically called to be closest to him and build community with at the greatest level. I want to highlight to Matthew, the tax collector. Let me help you understand something about tax collecting back then. The Roman guard and Rome was over the Jews at the time and over Israel. Even the coin that the Romans would have was a picture of Caesar with his foot on the neck of an Israelite. So every time you got paid, you're reminded, oh yeah, that's my, that's my life. And they would take up to 50% of your wages. You think we have it bad. They took your wages. And then not only that, but the tax collectors, because they had the Roman guard behind them, could even do more than that in order to make money because they had the authority behind them. So in, in Israel at that time, they had categories of sins. So you had like adulterers and murderers. But then the worst category, they would say tax collectors. That's how they felt about these people. They had their own category of sin that was greater than a murderer. You understand this? Tax collectors. That's... One of the 12, Jesus calls. That guy repents, drops everything, and follows Jesus. But then there's another one, and it's 
Simon the Zealot. This is the moniker next to his name. This moniker, a zealot, was a far-winged Jewish insurgency group, politically, that would conduct violent guerrilla-like terrorist activity on unsuspecting Roman soldiers in a quest for Israeli independence. They were known for ambushing other Roman guards in Rome in order to try to establish independence in Israel. And Jesus says, hmm, let me see, the people I want closest, how about you and you? Can you imagine morning coffee with those people, that community? Good morning, traitor. Good day, murderer. You imagine the conflict they go through. We, we could try to imagine it. Let me give you a scale. Let, let's imagine I'm a great rabbi. I have a lot of influence in the United States. People know who I am and my, my leadership. People are, people are hearing about it and I'm doing all these great works and miracles. And I decide I want to gather 12 people to be with me, not just to meet with over coffee, but to literally live with me and have a community with me for the next three years. And I'm going to train them and teach them my ways. And they want to apprentice under me. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get like Elon Musk and, you know, I'm to get some of these people that are great leaders and we're going to change the world. I'm establishing a new community, which some theologians would say there's an equivocation between community and the kingdom of God, creating something new. Who do I want on my team? Who would really go together? You know, I'm thinking about their strengths finders. You know, you know, let's grab Ben Shapiro. That guy is a Harvard Law grad. You know, he's really smart, good at debate, a little mean, but man, this is what I'm going to get. You, you know who else would really go if I'm looking at all of the way my, I want to build this team, the AOC. Let's grab her. Let's get these guys together, have some cereal. We'll have some good, nice conversation. I feel people triggered in here just by looking <laughs> That's called tribalism, by the way. <laughs> this is what Jesus brought and was dealing with. But listen, times this by 100 for what he had. And this is the community he began to build. How? Why? What is he doing? A tax collector who's on the payroll of Rome and a zealot. Who wants to kill Romans. What is Jesus up to? You imagine they have conflict and we get to see some of the conflict. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 23 says this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who had left their father, remember the fishermen earlier, came up to Jesus and he was, they, she was with her son. So she's like, come on boys. And kneeling before Jesus, she asked him something. She asked him for something. And look, he said to her, what do you want? Jesus is so patient. He's so kind. Here we go. Here's mom with the boys that are living with me. She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. See, she had this idea that Jesus was like a Moses figure who was going to deliver, just like Moses delivered in Exodus, the children of Israel from Egypt. Jesus is that new deliverer. He's that leader, and they're already with him. Now, now say that they're going to be the ones at your right hand and your left hand ruling with you. And I love Jesus' response. He says, you don't know what you're asking. We know what Jesus' life, ultimate 
death looks like. You don't know what you're even asking. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Again, that's a figure of speech to say, are you able to suffer the way I'm going to suffer? That's the cup I'm going to drink. They said to him, yeah, we're able. Notice they said, the boys chime in, "Uh, mom, let us talk. And he said, you will drink my cup. Ooh. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. In other words, I'm under authority and I only do what he says. Look at the humility of this leader, Jesus. As you would expect, word got around to the rest of the disciples. Verse 24, and when the 10 heard it, oh man. They were indignant at the two brothers. Indignant is a Bible word for very, very angry. I can't say it from the pulpit. Very angry. Because they're going, you know what we heard, James and John? What you got? You guys trying to make a power grab? And not only that, you're bringing your mom involved. But verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Again, Caesar with his foot on the neck, power grab and might makes right, which is all of our culture, just trying to step on each other and dog eat dog to get to that level and be at that place. And Jesus says, it shall not be among you. He uses it a teaching opportunity of leadership and humility, but whoever, would be great among you, must stand up for your rights, must be servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then he appeals to himself. You're following me, right? This is what I'm gonna do. If you wanna follow me, this is the community I'm building. And he says, even as I, me, the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's my cup. This is what you're going to drink in my community because I'm interested in building a community about sacrificing and serving one another in love for one another, not a power grab. That's who will be exalted in my community, he says. That's who I will build and take the solidarity and the lonely into this type of community and family in the midst of their conflict and their fighting and their different personalities that Jesus had to deal with for three years became a great lesson of his ultimate end goal. Now, because I'm your pastor, I apologize. Every time I hear, I I just love and hate memes that Jesus came to serve. I love, I just love this meme. I'm going to get this in your head. Look at Jesus' abs. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. You got served. Jesus is building a community that is trying to serve the world, whether it's fat dance moves or ultimately self-sacrifice. He's saying, I'm doing something different. Some of you are just now getting this. Like, oh, wow. So what can we learn from Jesus and Matthew's letter here. There's four things I want to highlight. Number one, Jesus lived in community. See, being a Christian, a follower of Jesus is a first call to follow Jesus, but then Jesus 
calls us into community. In other words, Jesus is absolutely enough, but he created an atmosphere and a greenhouse effect for us in order to truly grow and be like him is going to happen in the context of community. Multiplication will happen. You will not do it alone. So your faith in Jesus is personal, but it is not private alone. In fact, if you look at Jesus' life, you see him walking in two areas and kind of oscillating between two different things. One is silence and solitude with the Father, and one is then going back into community. And this is the rhythm of a disciple following Jesus. And you know this, if you've followed Jesus for even a minute, you know the best and the greatest times where God has spoken and done most in your life was either in silence and solitude, him speaking to you and changing your life, or within the context of worship and the community of God, where you saw people come alongside you and help you in obedience and acting like Christ and community or you experience something when we're all together praying and worshiping as God shows up and moves and loves on his community. Jesus lived in community and calls us. Number two, lots of people we see turn down his invitation to follow him. A lot of people say, you know what? I, I can't do it. I can't commit to that. Number three, those who did follow him were at different stages of maturity, different socio-political spectrums and got into regular conflict. We have this misnomer in our culture that you know, church and life with God is just always roses and easy and awesome and God calls us in the community and even community you don't necessarily love or like, you might say, oh, that person goes to that church, man, I'm out of here and not look at yourself and say, man, who am I to be called to Jesus? How can I dare judge that person? as God is calling me to deal with them, whether they're a tax collector or a zealot, whether they're black or white, whether they're Hispanic or Asian, whether they have a lot of money or little money because Jesus is building a community around him. Verse four, or number four, the end, we see this, the end goal of Jesus' community was to grow and mature his apprentices into people who were like him and who gave their life to sacrifice and service. Now, when we talk about community, there's a difference between chemistry, connection, and community. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, says this, the root of all friendship begins with you too. I love that. You too? You enjoy that? You wear those loafers too, right? You like the Texans too? You eat Tide Pods? Me too. It all begins with some type of chemistry. And you get to know somebody, you're like, oh, I love that outfit. That's what I wear too. I have those shoes. I have that thing. And it begins there. But chemistry and community are different. Because you can look around this room and see people you don't have a lot of chemistry with, but you can absolutely and should build community with. Amen. Connection and community are very different because you can have thousands of connections. And as we said earlier, have no one to talk to you face to face. In fact, the scary part about our connections nowadays is that you can meet somebody on a trip a year ago and talk to them every once in a while and ask them random questions or find out what they're doing in social media, but you never sit down face to face with somebody and just expose your life to them. And it's a pseudo community. So connection, although it's good, chemistry, although it's good, it's not community. So what is community? Community 
in the Bible is the Greek word koinonia, which is fellowship. Sharing in common or even communion. And not just communion at the table, even though Jesus doesn't just call us to a building. He doesn't call us to a specific atmosphere. He actually calls us to a table in communion. And every time we have communion, it is another time where we're making a renewed, confident stand to God in the covenant of Jesus saying, I'm all in. And I'm all in with my brothers and sisters here in relationship around the table. Communion as we like to say, or community, as we like to say, is common unity. What is the thing? We might not have a lot of chemistry. We might connect in different ways, but the thing, the people of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, the apprentices of Jesus have in common, which is the number one thing, is Jesus. So you know what? I can hear your testimony about Jesus, even though I don't understand everything about your life and everything that's gone through. I can go, you too? I could hear what God's doing in your life, and we could just talk about Jesus all day, and I could go, you too. And that is a deeper connection than any piece of fabric you'll buy together. That is true community, sharing with one another and building upon that common unity, the thing that you worship the most. And as followers of Jesus, it's not clothing, it's not a sports team, it is Jesus. And we come together, no matter your color or creed, you come together and say, I'm building community with you because we're going after the same Christ. Community is built. You know, there, there's a community uh, some of you guys are a part of. CrossFit is a good example of community, isn't it? I'm not a CrossFitter, but I know the cult. I mean, the community of CrossFit <laughs> get together there's something that happens. We have a mutual goal and you're challenging one another and stressing each other full in sweat equity and challenge that builds something in your life. And it's built around a mutual cause, a mutual mission. And it's sad that many people find community more in CrossFit than they do in the church of Jesus. And that's something against our churches. But churches are made of people, by the way. And it's people that are ultimately committed to Jesus and one another. So if we know loneliness is bad for your health, I mean, it's bad for society, it's bad for all of these things, why don't we check into community and get into things and, and just find ourselves in tribes and discombobulate? Why isn't the church more attractional? Or why don't we dive in? It's because there are blockers to community, number one. It is the individualism in our society that we grow in. Individual just as simple as, as finding myself by myself and within myself alone. We attack this as much as we can here at City Life Church in saying there's no self-made man or woman. Everyone has built on somebody's shoulders something. No one has done it all by themselves. You can say, well, I paid my way through college. Well, there were professors there to teach you. No one is by themselves, and yet this individualistic mentality that we have gone back and forth from. David Brooks in his book on community says this, our society suffers from a crisis of connection and a crisis of solidarity. We live in a culture of hyper-individualism. There's always a tension between self and society, between the individuals and the group. Over the past 60 years, we have swung too far toward the self. 
The only way out is to rebalance, to build a culture that steers people towards relation, community, and commitment. The things we most deeply yearn for yet undermine with our hyper-individualistic way of life. It blocks us. Just our natural culture blocks us from diving into community. The second block is idealism. Having this romantic ideal that somehow community and relationships are always going to be awesome, fun, and easy, but not hard work. We see this in marriages where marriages aren't failing just because of money, because of children, because of health issues. Ultimately, they're failing, I think. I believe in what we are seeing is because this wrong idealistic expectation of one another that's overly romantic. You're going to completely fulfill me. Everything you are is everything I'm going to get. And when you don't fulfill me, it is a deal breaker. You came into the relationship thinking that person can be everything for you. And you're already starting off behind the line in marriage. They were never built to completely fulfill you. In fact, when you have conflict, it's super healthy because you're vulnerable and you're finally opening up and standing for certain things and you learn how to conflict well. See, Jesus was building this community that was conflicting, these disciples that were having conflict in order, listen, to be a practice ground of love and grace and working things out in a beautiful way so that they can go out and change the world. That's why... Marriage, sometimes church, it can be the greatest experience of your life. It can be the hardest because you expose yourself and you risk being hurt. Finally, individualism blocks community. Idealism blocks community. And I think the biggest blocker of most of us and myself and in this room is intimidation fear of being exposed or held accountable. Like, we're so afraid to be vulnerable and just be like, this is me. Because if you really saw who I was, you're not going to accept me. And Jesus knows all of it and says, come follow me. I accept you. And I'm going to work that out in you. And I'm going to do it not just between me and God and just zap you and you're fine, but within community burning those things away as you learn how to walk in the grace that I'm giving you together. Not only is it afraid because of the vulnerability, but also I think we're afraid of the accountability. Because listen, you ever done this? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my best friend, okay, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to start working out four times a week. And you don't even want to say it because it builds accountability. If I say it, then they're going to hold me accountable to it. How much more spiritually? Community is built with the people that you confess your sin to. And we don't gawk at the sin. We go, you too? Been there. I too am saved by grace and need your help and accountability and vulnerability to walk this out. Community is built through accountability, vulnerability. And without vulnerability, you have no risk. But without community, there's ultimately no true vulnerability. As I close, the goal for today is really twofold to always come to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to run to him, but then also to recognize he's willing and ready. He's not waiting for you to be this tall and raised to this maturity, but to literally just commit, I'm in, I surrender all. 
But then beyond that, there is a commitment to community that Jesus calls us to. A couple of things. We have our city life groups where we're trying to build community, but it only happens if people come and commit. And we've had to delay some because last week with the floods, but we're continue, we're pushing, we're going, we're gonna have eight weeks of groups. And this is an opportunity for you to step in as uncomfortable and risky as it can be and just be like, okay, this is me. This is who I am. And trust that the Jesus community says, hey, that's fine. Let's talk, let's help, let's sharpen each other. Let's ultimately go after Jesus, our common unity together. Because Jesus, although his private faith, it is definitely a public faith where we need one another. I think another way is serving. Right now, our children's director, Aisha, who's amazing, sent me, sent, sent me some needs. She said, hey, our children's ministry is growing. We have sometimes 80 kids back there. We need three more volunteers in the check-in team. We need, in third service alone, we need eight volunteers for toddlers, six new volunteers for pre-K. We need elementary, six volunteers, preteens, six volunteers. And the way we have it set up, you only have to do it like once a month. But when you come in community, you share the conflict and the problems as well. And you get to share in building other children and have that sweat equity, as we talked about too, in Harvey Relief, or now our new relief, coming in and sweating and being willing to share together.